Welcome to Foothills Church Sermon of the Week. We hope you enjoy this message by Pastor Doug Peak. For more information about this podcast and other resources, please visit foothills.org. Welcome to our final installment on Fight Club. All of you on campus, all of you who are doing church at home or maybe watching it at a later date, you are invited. Everyone's invited to be a part of our family. Even if you're a transplant from another state or another nation, another continent, another planet, you're invited to be a part. It's easy. Just text one word, FH Next Step, FH Next Step, all one word, to 97,000. And you don't have to sign your name up for anything, but then you get some options and kind of figure out where you're at today as a group link because we want to connect you to a small group of friends because do not do life on your own. It's boring. We're in a series called Fight Club right now. It's about the battle for your soul. Everybody's in this battle. Ephesians chapter 6, where Paul says, for we're in a battle, a war against the rulers and principalities of this present darkness. And so we're kind of digging into that and applying it and going through the various aspects of what it means to be in this battle and apply it to men in particular to help them discover their God-given, God-ordained, masculine soul. And that's what Fight Club is all about, is we need to fight, guys, for that masculine soul that God has placed within us. Now, today we're going to finish with adventure. There's so much to cover in adventure, and uh, I'm going to try to cram it all in as quickly as I possibly can, so I'm going to talk really fast. No, actually, I'm not. But uh, we are going to read and study the Scriptures and talk about how you are meant to live an adventure. So many men are not living life. They are simply surviving it, and they've lost that masculine desire and motivation to make every day an adventure. Now, let's jump into our text today. We're going to be in Acts chapter 5. This is where the early church started, and right off the bat, we start to see how adventurous those disciples and apostles began living. And boy, was it an adventure. So I'd like to jump in and read this to you, beginning with verse 27. And the apostles had just been told by the governing authorities, the Sanhedrin, so this is an official court that has the power to have them executed, told them not to teach. They did it anyway. Look at verse 27. Now the apostles were brought in, so they were brought back, and made to appear before the Sanhedrin. So this isn't like a local judge or something. This is like the Supreme Court of their religious authority. To be questioned by the high priest. So this is the highest person in their uh, polity or governance. And this is what he said. We gave you strict orders not to teach in this name, he said. You have filled Jerusalem with your teaching, and you are determined to make us guilty of this man's blood. So the high priest is basically saying, you are making our life hard. We told you not to do this. What do you have to say to yourself? And Peter, who was not trained in de-escalation techniques, (laughs) says, Peter and the other apostles replied, so they were all saying this, we must obey God rather than human beings. And what he's saying is we must obey God rather than you. So he's directly challenging their authority. He says, the God of our ancestors raised Jesus from the dead, 
whom you killed by hanging on a cross. God exalted him to his own right hand as prince and savior. Now, I'd like to take a second and let you know that this word prince, if, if you'd like to take notes in your Bible, I'd, I'd circle that. If it's electronic, a tablet, highlight it. Because the word here in the original language is archagon. And it comes from two forms of a Greek root, uh, um, arc, like, you know, when you say you have an arc enemy, you know, this, the, the, this powerful overarching enemy, an ego, which is, and it was used to describe in Greek literature heroes. It only appears four times in the New Testament. Another time it appears in reference to Jesus in Hebrews chapter 2, verse 10. And what they do is, is they try to translate it the best they can, but it loses its flavor. And its flavor is this, is that uh, it, the Greeks called Hercules, their hero and champion, one of their most famous heroes and champions, Archagon. And so Jesus, to the apostles, was the hero. He was the champion as well as the Savior. So that gives you a little different flavor of how the apostles viewed Jesus. He goes on to say, he might bring Israel to repentance and forgiveness of sins. Now, you and I don't understand the slap in the face that Peter just gave the high priest. Because what did everything that the high priest did, all of the ceremonies, all of the religious rites, all of the feasts, all of the things that they're supposed to do were designed to communicate one thing. And that is, we will do all of these religious rites, all of these uh, feasts, all of these ceremonies, all of these sacrifices in order to espunge our guilt, to get forgiveness of our sins so that we can live in full covenant with God. And he says to this guy, everything you're doing doesn't work. Jesus is the one who brings forgiveness of our sins. He's our champion and our hero. So what he goes on to say, we are witnesses of these things. We are witnesses. We just didn't you know, eat a bunch of uh, soured hummus and anchovies, go to bed and have a weird vision that Jesus rose from the dead. We saw him over and over. We walked with him. We talked with him. We ate with him. We went fishing in his presence. We started fires. We did all these things. So we saw him over and over again. So we witnessed this. We saw it with our own eyes. And so is the Holy Spirit whom God has given to those who are who obey him. And so this was such an affront. Look at verse 33. Now, when they heard this, they were furious, absolutely furious, and they wanted to put him to death. They're like, okay, I'm done. Kill him. I'm done. Just kill the guy. Okay, kill them all. But a Pharisee named Gamaliel, a teacher of the law who was honored by all the people, stood up in the Sanhedrin and ordered the men be put outside for a little while. So they send the apostles out. And he says, Men of Israel, consider carefully what you intend to do to these men. It, be very careful. Some time ago, Thudius appeared, claiming to be somebody, and about 400 men rallied to him. He was killed. All his followers dispersed. It came to nothing. After him, Judas the Galilean appeared in the day of the census and led a band of people in revolt. He too was killed. All his followers scattered. Do you see a pattern here? He's thinking. Leave these men alone. 
Therefore, this is the case I advise. Let them go. For if their purpose or activity is of human origin, it will fail. But if it is from God, you will not be able to stop these men. You will only find yourselves fighting against God. Now, this is called Gamaliel's argument in theology. It's a big deal. And the reason why is what he's saying is this. He's saying, look, they're not preaching themselves. The apostles aren't saying, follow us. What they're doing is they're preaching Jesus who was executed. So, just like every person who tries to get followers, once they're dead, it falls apart. It's always happened that way. So, let it fall apart. It didn't turn out that way, did it? <laughs> We're all here today. His speech persuaded him, so they called the apostles in and had them flogged. Flogged. This is not a spanking with a wooden spoon or a spatula. Many people, when they were flogged, couldn't walk because it was so painful. Today, they use a, a milder form of it in Islamic countries called caning. They ordered them not to speak in the name of Jesus, and then they let them go. Don't ever mention this name again. Don't you ever talk about it again. You've been flogged. You'll be flogged again. It's going to get worse. So the apostles left the Sanhedrin rejoicing. They're rejoicing because they'd been counted worthy of suffering disgrace for the name. What name is that? Jesus Christ. Day after day in the temple courts and from house to house, they never stopped teaching and proclaiming the good news that Jesus is the Messiah. Now, I want you to see three basic principles here that come out of this story, and that is this. Number one is these apostles believed they were in a righteous battle. It was like, hey, you guys stop, you quit, we're going to cane you, we're going to torture you, we're gonna, you got to stop. And then they said, we must obey God rather than men. Why do you think guys like action movies so much? Well, one of the reasons why is, well, there's explosions and guns and bullets and those kinds of things, which are always kind of fast cars or things going off cliffs. That's cool. But the main reason is because the bad guy is always clear as a bell, right? He's always some psychotic billionaire who wants to destroy all life, you know? And so evil is well-defined. It's clarified. And so these men were in a righteous battle. It was clear as a bell to them. We must obey God rather than men. We're going to do the opposite of what you're telling us to do. Number two, they had an unwavering conviction. It says, we are witnesses. We've seen it with our own eyes. Every one of the apostles died because they were martyred for their faith. Early church history says that none of them would recant what they saw, that Jesus Christ was raised from the dead. He was the King of kings and Lord of lords. And because of that, they were all died prematurely. The other thing, too, is I find really fascinating, a biblical principle here, is that the early apostles rejoiced because they got flogged for the name of Jesus. And what that tells me is they were very sacrificial. As a matter of fact, paying the sacrifice became a badge of honor to them. They rejoiced in that, that while we are worthy enough to suffer the same fate as Jesus and what this tells us is that this attitude, this spirit, which came from God and brought such courage 
to these early followers of Jesus that when you go back and you read ancient history, you will find that the early followers of Christ were the most heroic people that the world has ever known. I mean, these people were super heroic. Nero, he decided that uh, he would burn down part of Rome so he could rebuild it. Uh, And so when it got out of control, he decided to blame this new weird group of people called Christians. And so they were persecuted. One of the things he did is that for Christians, he would take them, uh, he would wrap them in thistles, he would pour oil over them, and then he would impale them up on poles and light them on fire to light up his garden parties. And that's what, that's what he would do. If you flip over two chapters into chapter 7, you'll see one of the first martyrs of the church was Stephen, a deacon. And he speaks, they take him out, they stone him to death. So Gamaliel's argument didn't keep the peace for very long. They stone him to death. And you know the last thing that Stephen said before he died? He said, God, do not hold this sin against them. Nero also built this thing called Nero Circus, and it was a place where they would have games and all this kind of stuff. And what he would do is he'd round up Christians. People would refuse to recant their faith in Jesus Christ. And he would take uh, lions and wild beasts, and he'd starve them for weeks. And they'd feed them little bits of human flesh. And then they'd open the gates, and these Christians would kneel, and they would pray and sing hymns to God by the, while they're being devoured by wild beasts. These people were heroic. I mean, not only did they refuse to recant, they refused to uh, hurl insults at their jailers. They refused to curse those uh, who were torturing them and killing them. These people were heroic. And the heroism kept going on and on. Later on in Rome, uh, in the mid-3rd century, so from about 249 to about 260, there was a massive plague in Rome. Uh, historians today believe that this was the beginning of the downfall of the Roman Empire because so many people died, it weakened the empire. They didn't have enough labor, and they didn't have enough people to fight in the legions anymore, and it destroyed their food production. And so their economy broke, and then eventually, as most people believe, is that the Roman Empire collapsed because of economic reasons. Well, this plague was called the Plague of Cyprian, or Cyprian's Plague. And the reason it's called Cyprian's Plague isn't because Cyprian had anything to do with it. The plague, or what they called it a pestilence, came from the Roman legions who were way, way out in the Far East fighting, and they got infected, and they brought it back with them. And it infected the whole Roman Empire and passed. It was, but Cyprian was the bishop of Carthage. So he was like the lead pastor in Carthage, which is in northern Africa. And what he, he did is he wrote down and described all of the symptoms of the plague. And the reason why is because so many people were dying between 30 and 50% of the population that when someone started to present one of these symptoms, they would, their family would abandon them. They, if they were on any type of sheet or anything, they wouldn't even touch them. They just dragged them out into the street. And so people are laying out in the street, right, dying of these diseases and nobody would touch them and, and stuff like that. And so uh, Cyprian seeing this, started to say, our call is to minister to all who are brokenhearted. And so they started to go and minister to these people who were dying. And a lot of them got this disease. They believe it was smallpox or measles, and it killed them as well. In one of the places where he describes all of the symptoms of this plague, right after that, 
he writes, and this is in De Mortalietate, and this is what he wrote. What a grandeur of spirit it is to struggle with all the powers of an unshaken mind against so many onsets of devastation and death. Do you hear what he's saying? He's saying it's great to struggle against the devastation and death against the human race with an unshaken mind. So he's saying, I am convinced. He says this, what sublimity, in other words, what sublime, in other words, what peace, what peace there is to stand erect amid the desolation of the human race and not to lie prostrate with those who have no hope in God. So he's seeing all these people who are sick, laying prostrate in the street, uh, clamoring and screaming for some type of relief. They have no hope in God. And he says, what peace it is to stand erect in the midst of this devastation because we have hope in God. He goes on to say, but I can rather rejoice and embrace the benefit of the occasion. What? How in the world can you embrace the benefit of a massive pandemic in Carthage and all of the Roman Empire that's wiping everybody out? This is what he says, that thus in bravely showing forth our faith and by suffering endured. See, he doesn't want to skip the suffering. He's not saying, God save us from everything. He's saying, we are going to stand like those early apostles and we're going to consider it worthy to suffer the same things that our Lord and Savior suffered. He goes, when we bravely show forth our faith, suffering endured, going forward to Christ by the narrow way that Christ trod, we may receive the reward of his life and faith according to his own judgment. And you know what historians looking back on this experience say to this day? You can read Encyclopedia Britannica, you can read Wikipedia and all these things. They all say this, both the threat of imminent death from the plague and the unwavering conviction among many of the Christian clergy in the face of it won many converts to that religion. That's called heroism. Many people think, wow, he must have just, you know, been such a great leader. And he was a powerful leader, but Rome hated him. And as a matter of fact, they executed him for his faith. Before the plague even ended in 261 AD, in 258 AD, he was brought before the proconsul, and the council said this, Galerius Maximus. He goes, are you Thaceus Cyprianus? Cyprian says, I am. This is the actual Roman record of his trial. Galerius says, the most sacred emperors have commanded you to conform to the Roman rites. Cyprian, I refuse. Galerius, take heed for yourself. Cyprian, do as you are bid. In so clear a case, I may not take heed. In other words, he's saying, it's so clear what you've asked me to do, and I will not listen. I will not recant. Never, ever, 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 ever. Ever, ever. Galerius, after briefly, briefly conferring with his judicial counsel with much reluctance, pronounced the following sentence. You have long lived an irreligious life. 
You have drawn together a number of men bound by an unlawful association. You profess yourself an open enemy to the gods and the religion of Rome. And the pious, most sacred, and august emperors have endeavored in vain to bring you back into conformity with their religious observances. Whereas, therefore, you have been apprehended as a principal and ringleader in these infamous crimes, you shall be made an example to those whom you have wickedly associated with you. The authority of law shall be ratified in your blood. He then read the sentence of the court from a written tablet. It is a sentence of this court that Theseus Cyprianus be executed with the sword. And Cyprian says, thanks be to God. They immediately walked him outside and executed him. These are phenomenal heroic events. And when you're a guy and you hear that, you think to yourself, there's something that kind of resonates in there a little bit. These guys had guts. What has happened to the men of today? And you think to yourself, I don't want to be a guy who melts. I want to be a guy who understands a righteous battle. I want to be a guy who understands that inner drive to discover my masculine soul. And you know why that is? It's because it's in you in two basic ways that God has designed it in you. As we talked about in one of the very first messages is that God designed testosterone to flood you uh, from the very earliest of your embryonic stages, guys, and that changes the way you think. It changes your physical body. It changes how you process information, how you process emotions. Everything about you is different and unique because you're masculine with testosterone raging through your soul. It wants you to take more risks. It wants you to take more adventurous steps. You want to Step out and try and test your limits because of testosterone. The other reason is why is because you're spiritual, created in the image of God, and your soul longs to follow the warrior king and to step out and say, yes, I will fight in a cosmic battle of epic proportions where the, the evil is clear and I will engage for I will not stand on the sidelines. I will be like Cyprian and I will say, I will stand tall in this thing called life in this world. I will put my shoulders back and my chin high. And though the world is devastated by all of this craziness, I will be fearless in my faith and who I am as a man. No man is proud of himself when he tucks his chin, cowers in the back. You remember uh, when Marvel came out with the first Avengers, you know, and the bad guy Loki goes to steal something and he tells everybody to, to bow there in Germany. Bow, everyone, bow, bow down, bow down. I will rule you, blah, blah. And there's this one old guy who stands tall and he threatens to take his life and he says, there has always been men like you and I stand against you. Every man longs for that moment when he knows with an unwavering conviction in a righteous battle, he says, I will stand. Because your inner hero longs for an adventure. It longs to discover something that every man needs to discover, and that is courage and faith. 
What, what is it about guys, you know, they're out hiking, you know, along, you know, hiking along, you know, and you see these mountain peaks up there, and they go, hey, aren't those mountains beautiful? Yeah. One guy will say, let's climb it. What? Let's climb it. No, they're not looking at the little one over here, the little anthill there. No, they always pick the biggest one. Let's go to the top of that one, you know. People say, I'm going to go, you know, climb Mount Everest. Really? Can I go? What is it that, that when guys get together, it's not only let's climb that or let's build that thing, you know? Have you ever seen those guys that, uh, that live on lakes and hills, you know? The first thing they do is they go, hey, let's go swimming in the lake. And that's five minutes later, it gets boring. So then what they do is they go, let's take out this giant thing of visqueen, 300 feet long, right? And put it on the side of the hill. Let's squirt some liquid soap on it, a little water. And then they'll just go zooming down this slippy slide right into the lake, right? And you're going, now that's fun. That lasts five minutes. And they say, you know what we ought to do? What? Let's build a giant ramp on the end of it. So it throws you 300 feet in the air, right? Have you seen that on YouTube? They're like, zooming down there, you know. Other guys are saying, hey, let's, let's, hey, there's this crevasse. Let's put a rope across it, okay? Well, that's cool. I'm going to walk across that rope. You know, I got all my safety stuff, and some guy goes over there, and he gets in the middle of it, and he starts going, hey, this is kind of fun, you know? And now he's bouncing. What is it with guys? We want you know, they see this gigantic thing out there and their first thought, we you know we're this big, this gigantic monster, everything is, hey, let's go hunt that. You know, let's go hunt that. So what is it? It's because inside the heart of every man is it a desire to discover his courage. You see, a challenge requires courage. The outcome is not guaranteed. We take risks and it drives the women in our life crazy. Joshua 1.9 says, Have I not commanded you, declares the Lord? Be strong and courageous. Do not tremble. Do not be dismayed. For the Lord your God is with you. Wait for the Lord, it says in Psalms 27. Wait for the Lord. Wait for the Lord. Wait for the Lord. So you can be strong and let your heart take courage. Your inner hero longs for a real adventure, and that adventure has to be a courageous, righteous battle. It has to be righteous in its orientation. Otherwise, it doesn't require good courage. It just requires risky behavior. This is what the apostle said. We must obey God rather than men. It was a righteous battle. What more righteous battle is there than the battle for your soul, for your freedom? William Wallace tells uh, in Braveheart, he, he's giving his speech and he's talking to the guys. He goes, you know, in this battle, you could leave and you will live. And you will die. Every man dies. Every man dies. But so few men live. And the reason they live is because they don't live life. They don't live an adventure. They just chase after it. I've been waiting to uh, tell the church something because it's a little bit risky, and uh, I thought I'd tell you now, and that is, is that uh, I have been uh, learning how to fly a plane, and I am pursuing my private pilot's license, okay? And uh, thank you, thank you. Uh, I'm at the point, though, is I didn't want to tell you up front because I thought I might just be too chicken and, like, say, flying's not for me, right? I mean, I was, whoo But now I'm at the point where this week, uh, this coming week, uh, I'm going to go flying three times, and on Friday, I'm culminating with the end of my training 
Uh, I don't have the license yet because you have to get checked on a check ride. But the last thing you have to do, the culmination of your training for your practice for your check ride, is called it's a five hour solo flight. You got to fly five hours, three or four different airports all over the state of Idaho, go down to Utah. You got to land at all these airports and come back all on your own, all by yourself. So it's a big solo, and I'm prepared for that. And I'm, I'm, almost, I'm almost there. I'll be doing that. Uh, pray that I'm here to preach for Mother's Day. So um, <laughs> just saying. But what's happening is, uh, the reason I'm telling you that is because uh, uh, I'm getting close, and I can see kind of the the finish line, I wanted to be close when I shared that with the church. But one of the things that's really interesting is that when I'm, I'm learning to fly is that planes are really interesting things is because when they're in the air, they're so happy. <laughs> planes are designed to fly, so when they're in the air, they're happy things. They like that, right? They're happy. Uh, planes don't like to be cars. They don't like being cars. You know, they don't like that. If it's windy and you're on the ground in your plane, that tends to be really bad because the wind flips a plane over and does all kinds of stuff. You drive it with your feet, you know. So sometimes you're doing this, and when you first start, and the plane doesn't do anything. And your CFI laughs at you and says, uh, it's because you drive the, steer the plane with your feet, actually. Oh. So one of the biggest things about planes is this, is that, is that the most dangerous part in a plane, the most dangerous time in a plane, is when it transitions from being a plane to a car. And that's called landing. Yeah. So what happens is I'm flying and doing all this, and part of your training is, is that, you know, for hour after hour, all you do is you take off, fly a little rectangle, and land. Take off. <laughs> you do that time, you know, you do like 10 or 11 of those in an hour, and you just do that. Because they're trying to get you to feel it. You have to feel it and see it and feel it and see it. And one of the things that he always says, says to me, he goes, look, you do great when you're prepared. When, you know, you're coming in, you got the right pitch, you got the right you know, descent, you got the right speed, the right flaps, you got the plane dialed in. He goes, you land a plane, great. He goes, but if we come in and you're hurried, you start chasing the plane. You know, oh, it's too low, so I'm now I'm trying to get it up. It's too fast, I'm trying to slow it down. It's too slow, I'm trying to speed it up. That's called chasing the plane. And when you chase the plane, accidents happen all the time. He says, I got to get you to the point where you're not chasing the plane, you're flying the plane. You know what's coming, you're anticipating it, you're prepared. If something happens that you didn't expect, you immediately know how to respond to it. You don't sit there and go, what's the plane doing? You know, well, it's flipping upside down, and you better do something about that. <laughs> so you got to get to that point. And you know what? So many men chase life and never fly it. And your life is filled with mistakes and failures, and then you feel like, I can't do this. I'm not supposed to be happy. I'm not supposed to be accomplished. I'm not supposed to be victorious. I'm not supposed to be any of those things because what you've done without knowing it is you made an agreement with the devil who wants to destroy your life. And when he says that junk to you, you say, yeah, you're probably right. And Christ came, said, I came to break that through the power of the resurrection. You think that the resurrection of my sacrifice is weak? Do you think that it's, that it's filled with flaws and incapabilities? It is not. It is the most powerful force the universe has ever known, and it breaks every agreement that the evil one has tried to put into your brain. So what you need to do is stop chasing life and start flying it. You're the pilot. You've been given the tools. You have the weapons of warfare. So fly your life. Don't listen any longer to the one who says, you can't 
follow Christ, you can't be who you were meant to be. You can't discover your masculine heart. You can't be the man. Right now, some of you men are feeling like, I've got, a boy, whoo, I've got challenges right now, and I, I, how am I going to do that? I don't know how to do that. I, I don't know how to do that. You can spend all your time asking yourself, how in the world am I going to do that? That's called chasing the plane. Or you can say up there, say, I don't know, God, but you put me here right now, and these are challenges. I have no way to do this. I have no idea, but this is your idea, so let's get busy. Let's just get busy, God. Make some stuff happen right now, because uh, I'm stepping out in faith. I am letting your faith speak to me, God, to live life as I was called to live. And that means to trust in you. It's trust in you. And the finding and restoration of your warrior heart in trusting God is the highest priority of your spiritual life. And that's what it means to live the adventure. Which leads me to the last thing. And here's where so many guys start chasing the plane instead of flying the plane of life. And that is this. Your inner hero wants a sacrifice. The apostles rejoice because they got flogged. Yeah, that's awesome. If you hang around men of substance, men who are really men, you know what they say? They say, every awesome thing, every incredible thing that I ever did cost me something. The good things in life are not easy and they're not meant to be. Otherwise, what? Everyone would do it. And not everyone does. See, there is no adventure, there is no discovery of your inner hero without sacrifice. Without sacrifice. I mean, the things that men respect and the things that men honor, look at that, you know, look at Navy SEALs. And if you're going to go become a Navy SEAL, what do you got to do? You got to go through BUDS training. It's a big, long training. And people don't realize that, you know, it's months and months and months of training. But the one thing that everybody knows about is one week, right? About a third of the way in. And that week is aptly named. They call it Hell Week. And what do you have to do? You have to survive Hell Week. And every guy hates it. They see it with trepidation. But every guy who goes through it says what? They, it, it's now a badge of what? Honor. You see, part of the reason why so many boys who are walking around adult bodies today are struggling with who they are is because they want the victory without the sacrifice. They want the peak without climbing to the top. They, they want the, the blessing without the suffering and the struggle to get there. And what that is, is that do you think God set it up so you could just suffer because God likes suffering? No, that's not it at all. What he's saying is that when we invited Satan into this thing, we men were told in Genesis what to do what? We were told to rule and subdue. And when we invited Satan into this world, what did we do is we gave him the authority to rule this world. That's what we did. That's on us. And so now, the, that, if you read Genesis chapter 3 and you read the curse, what is a curse for every guy? It says that the fruit of the land will only come about, the harvest will only come about through what? Sweat. That's called sacrifice. I don't know what your sacrifice is. But I would tell you that the greatest thing you could do as a man is say, I need to pay the price for something, right? Is your wife 
a little estranged from you? Is your wife not as happy as she could be? When you look into her, do you see fullness and joy? Or do you see a little bit of pain, a little bit of betrayal, right? Well, you can sit there and go, well, if she would and fill in the blanks and make all this stuff better, then you're kind of acting like a boy. Or you could say to yourself, it's time that I, this is what I want. The pastor was teaching that the intent of my sex drive is to build intimacy. I want intimacy with this woman, and so I'm going to pay the price to get it. You certainly paid the price when you were dating, right? You know, gas, dinner, movie. Man, do I really have a payment plan for my popcorn? What's up with that? You know, doom, that, right? So, so why not keep, because the thing is, it's not for her, it's not for that, it's for you. The things that you sacrifice for, guys, are the things you value the most. Never, 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 ever, ever, ever try to get around the sacrifice because your adventure is the sacrifice. You see, your adventure always begins with a dream, but the way it moves forward is with sacrifice. So no sacrifice, no progress. And when you learn that, then you have victory. You have victory because God is, says this. He goes, look, you're fighting with the mighty power of God. And here are your weapons. These weapons of warfare are divinely inspired. They are powerful to win the victory of the greatest cosmic battle that you will ever be a part of. You see, it reminds me of this quote by uh, the 26th, uh, Oh, it's on here. The 26th president of the United States, Teddy Roosevelt. And he has this thing called the man in the arena, and he captures this, I think, really, really quite well. And here's how it goes. It says, it's up on the screen, it is not the critic who counts, not the man who points out how the strong man stumbles or where the doer of deeds who could have done them better. No, the credit the credit belongs to the man who's actually in the arena, whose face is marred with dust and sweat and blood, who strives valiantly, though he errs. He comes up short again and again, because guess what? There is no effort, no effort without error and shortcoming. But he who does actually strive to do the deed. He attempts to do the thing so he knows a great enthusiasm, the great devotions, who spends himself in a worthy cause, who at the best knows, in the end, triumph of high achievement, but who at the worst, even if he fails, even if he fails, at least he fails while daring greatly so that his place shall never be with those cold and timid souls who neither know victory nor defeat. My friends, my friends, you cannot know the point of your life. You cannot know the point of your life, the purpose of your life. You can't enjoy your life until you know the mission of your life. And the mission is you're in a cosmic battle and the field of battle is your soul. And my job as your pastor is to pull back the curtain so you can see the reality in which you actually exist, the true nature of who you are and who you are meant to become. My job is to help you discover Jesus and through the power of his erection, he will win this battle in you, with you, and through you 
for it is the very battle of your soul. So my final saying is this, no man will ever discover his masculine soul unless he fights for it. No follower of Jesus will ever discover the strength and depth of their faith unless they fight for it. And no one will ever live a real life, a true life, an authentic life, an abundant life, unless they face the enemy of life and fight him for it. This is your faith because this is what Christ has reborn. This is your sword right here. Pick them up. Fight. Welcome to Fight Club. God made you to be a warrior in his kingdom. You are called to venture out into the world and fight for Jesus. If you're ready to join the fray, then please don't wait. Text FH Next Step to 97000 to see how we can help you grow in your faith. For those of you who are at home, please take some time to consider what you've heard today by reviewing the discussion questions that will be on the screen. If you're on campus, please stand for a blessing to end our service. Thank you for listening to this Sermon of the Week. Video footage of this sermon and others can be found on foothills.org.